Hello, everyone. Before I start today's show, I would like to acknowledge the tragedy that happened Sunday afternoon. Not only did we lose one of the greatest, not just basketball players, but athletes in general on Sunday, we also lost friends, family, we lost nine wonderful souls. And I'd like to, before we get into today's show, to take a moment to remember the lives of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gigi Bryant, John, Carey, Alyssa Altabelli, Sarah Peyton Chester, Christina Mauser, and Ara Zobayan. I'd like to have a moment of silence here to remember the nine souls we lost on Sunday. Hello everyone, I am Tyler Kuehl and welcome to another episode of the Kuehl Podcast. We have another great episode here today. Obviously, we are still reeling from the events of this past Sunday and obviously a lot of reflection over the last couple of days in order to, I guess, better figure out what to say regarding these events. I guess we should probably go back to Sunday afternoon, at least to kind of get where I was at. I'm Tyler, I'm, I'm going to be the only one here today. I should probably mention that. Alex is busy with class and work, so he'll be back hopefully next week. We weren't able to get a time this week with us because I have a game actually tonight, this Tuesday night on January the 28th. I am not able to, I guess, make amends because I got a lot of wedding stuff tomorrow because as of tomorrow, I am one month removed from having a missus in my life as I pretty much already have one now, is one of half of our lovely peanut gallery. But let's go back to Sunday because I would like to take this second to just remember Kobe because Kobe Bryant was just, he was, it's funny, we ha- he was this crazy talent that when I was young, because I would have been, been two years old when he came into the league and he I didn't know much, obviously, when I was young then, but he, by the time I came to and I kind of was able to remember him, he was on top of the world. He was with Shaq, and they were the dynamic duo, and the Lakers were winning three straight championships, and they were probably the best basketball duo pretty much since Michael and Scottie Pippen, and that's, the, I guess, the, the truth of it. And we really haven't seen one since. There was the three amigos in... Boston or the three Boston three party, whatever you want to call it. There was, you know, Dwayne, LeBron, and Chris Bosch down in Miami, but Kobe was this outstanding player. He became a verb. He became a verb. That's how good Kobe Bryant was. Because well, I he'd always shoot. He'd always find a way to make a big play. And one of the first basketball games I ever played outside of the Sega Genesis because that's what I pretty much played when I grew up, was NBA Street, the first one. And what my brother and I would do, because the Pistons were awful, all I had was Ben Wallace, Jerry Stackhouse, the 
That's how bad they were at that time. I would play as the Toronto Raptors because I'd be Vince Carter because Vince Sanity. Why not, right? And my brother would be the Los Angeles Lakers with Kobe Bryant back when he had the fro or the, the small fro, whatever he used to have back then. This is how long ago this was. And we would play for hours and hours. Yeah, we had our creative teams as well, but if those were the, if we only could play NBA teams because we had this thing. So, quick side story. When we'd go on the road for hockey tournaments, we'd bring the PS2, but we'd never bring the memory cards. If you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. If you're too young, I'm sorry. Memory we because we didn't want to lose them because we had all of our memory on them and stuff. So we'd always play, if we did NBA Street, we'd either have to quickly pound out the cheat codes to get all the creative players, or all the cool players, or we played as NBA teams. So we'd play, you know, we'd do like same thing with NHL and so on and so forth. And then my buddy next door, TJ Van Sluten, had NBA Live 2002 for the PlayStation. Once again, I would be the Toronto Raptors or the Pistons, depending on the day it was. Because I was younger and I still cheered for Detroit, but of course, or I was, or I was the Washington Wizards because that was the year Michael Jordan was in the video game. But of course, Kobe Bryant was the top player because that was that was in the middle of the three peat. That was after the second season because 2002 was their third straight championship. He was so good. He was dominant. He was efficient. He was selfish, but you just couldn't stop him. He led Team USA. He had the hardest work ethic, and that's something over the last couple of days that I almost had to be reminded about, that he was, he was relentless. He wanted to win. He never, never took no for an answer. Whether you said he was the worst or even if he was in a couple bad games in a row, guess what? He was still going to be there the next night, and that's what, that's what makes him this transcending sport. This, he, doesn't, he transcends basketball. He reaches all spectrums of sport. That's what makes his tragic passing just that, an absolute tragedy, because he was an enigma. He was this absolute athlete that everyone loved. Everyone wanted to be around him. Everyone wanted to see Kobe Bryant. All corners of the globe, from China to Los Angeles, from Toronto down to the far southern reaches of South America. Everyone wanted to see Kobe Bryant because he was the best. And yes, in the stories of obviously he used to take a helicopter to practice just because he wouldn't have to sit in traffic. He'd be able to get there quicker and able to get home quicker as well. He obviously was a very big family man, loved his daughters. And of course, Gianna was with him, and Gigi was probably going to be the next, I guess, the next Kobe, I guess you could say, just because of the fact that he was, she was, I guess, his, one of his pride and joys, you know, having four daughters. And it's just, the weirdest thing about it is going back to Sunday in particular, we were, I was at Patterson with Thomas, Thomas Biondo. Him and I were about to do the game. Three o'clock puck drop, and we were going to go live 2.45, just like we usually do. 15 minutes before game time. And I went to the restroom one last time, came back, and Thomas, as I'm walking into the press box, Thomas looks at me and says, Kobe's dead. 
with this confused, you know, quiz-like look on his eye, look in his eye, because you could tell he was like confused, but wasn't sure. And I said, "I'm like, what? Like, I'm not saying that. I'm like, that's not impossible, but that's not right. It's so weird because he, a, he's only 41 years old, and b, he's he's done all this stuff. Like, there's a, there's no way he could. He Kobe Bryant was one of those people that could come back in the league right now and still be a top player without a question. That's how good he was. But course the stupid TMZ that joke of a stinking business came out and whatever posted it and so when I saw TMZ posted it I looked at like all right we, we, there, there's nothing we can go on there there's nothing we can go on that'd be dumb if we even tried to so we end up doing our pregame 10 minutes we usually about a 10 minute pregame we take the last few minutes go to break before you know the puck drop and when we went to break, so it's been about 3.55, 3.56, go back to Twitter on our laptops and just we just see everything. We don't follow really basketball people. I mean, granted, I follow Sportsnet, which covers the Raptors. I follow TSN, which covers the Raptors. I follow Arash Madani just because I love his Twitter account. It's informative and entertaining. I follow Faisal Kamis because he's entertaining as well. Cabby Richards, because you'd be dumb if you didn't. And all of those people started tweeting and confirming. That's when it set in. And at this point, the game was second. I mean, our the women's Panthers team was handled pretty well. They lost in that game, I believe, 7 nothing to Miami, Miami of Ohio. And by the third period... I was just, I was on Twitter. I was doing my color commentary with Thomas, but I was on Twitter. And I, we kept wondering, should we mention something? Should we say something? Because at that time, there were so many different reports of who actually was in the crash, who was, you know, who the victims were. There were reports that were saying all four of his daughters were there. His Vanessa was in there. There were so many different reports. Nobody was sure. So... When it came time to, I literally just said, no, we're, we just can't say anything yet. Nothing's definitive. We cannot say anything on the broadcast because the last thing we wanted to do, Thomas and I agreed that we did not want to be wrong. This is something you do not get wrong. This is something you don't get a second chance to fix. This is such a big deal because he was such an important, not just a important player, not just an important athlete, an important person in the world. In all aspects of life, Kobe Bryant's one of the most popular people on the face of this planet. He's up there with Gretzky. He's up there with, geez, you, go, you just go down the list. He's up there with Jesse Owens. He's, you know, comparable to, gosh, give me another one, Tom Brady. I mean, Tom had a wonderful very heartfelt uh, post that he put out there as well. I mean, he, Michael Jordan, I mean, listen, he may not have been great, even though he actually passed him in points. He just, he was it. You know, there was LeBron, yeah, but there was Kobe. Still being consistent. Kobe Bryant is probably the comparable, if you want to today. Hockey fans can argue about this as much as you want. 
he is the comparable Kobe Bryant to, I mean, however you want to go. Kobe is to Gretzky as LeBron is to Mario or vice versa. No matter what, in some aspect, Kobe was being underlooked compared to LeBron James. Just because at the point when LeBron finally started winning championships, people thought Kobe was long since past his prime. And people thought when LeBron started making the finals, even back in his first stint in Cleveland, that Kobe was past his prime. I remember watching the 4 final and watching Kobe just get dismantled by the Pistons defense in game four. We only had one point in the entire first half. I remember that game very vividly because that time I was cheering for Detroit to beat the almighty Lakers. Don't forget, that was a Lakers team that was only two years removed from the three-peat. They were so good, and they were like, all right, we got to beat the Lakers because nobody because nobody wants Los Angeles to win. Los Angeles, New York, nobody wants them to win except if you're in New York or Los Angeles. But he was still, you were almost shocked that he was not being able to put up points. And when he did, when he got when he got open, geez, you just you didn't allow him an opportunity like that. And he was so good for so long, his consistent ability to be a game changer on the court was insurmountable. I don't, there's not many players. I mean, there's only a select few in the history of the NBA to ever be as good and be as dominant as Kobe was. LeBron will never hit 81 points. Now, granted, yes, Kobe put 81 points up on a Raptors team that was comparable to their expansion team. Let's be honest. I mean, it, he is, he was one of the greatest to ever play the game. And of course, the NBA was very good, and so was the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. They were they did a very efficient job of making immediately that he was going to get the special exception, as he was going he is going to be inducted into the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame, or the Basketball Hall of Fame class of 2020, much deserved. But it's it's crazy. It's tragic. It's sad. It's given given a lot of us an opportunity to remember how great he was. And yeah, granted, when he played, there were mixed reviews on him from start to finish. High school kid, you know, the stuff in 2003, the selfishness with the basketball, whatever you want to call it, you could not ignore the fact that he was the hardest working and pretty much the best of his generation. I wish I could put it into better words of how to remember him, but it's just it's a huge loss for the sports world. Not just basketball, but sports as a whole. I mean, there's really no other way to put about it about Kobe. He, I could probably talk for another half hour about Kobe Bryant just because... When I was younger, when Kobe was, I guess, towards the end of his peak or whatnot, I did follow basketball a little bit more. I pr- I'd say probably it ended, it, okay, it, re- it reignited when the Raptors started making the playoffs, but I'd say probably around the time Boston won the championship was probably the last time I really, I guess, followed it, I guess more or less, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a huge tragedy, and you know, I you know, always hug your loved ones tight at night before you go to bed. That's that's my reminder for tonight, for tomorrow, and every day onward. So now we should probably get to the hockey part of this show. And before we go any further, I must remind you to make sure you talk about today's show. 
Use an at the kill podcast. Tweet us our Twitter handle. You can use the hashtag the kill podcast. Hashtag TKP. I don't care what Alex says. We can use TKP because, yeah, we may not be Turkish, but I do not care. We are TKP. So the All-Star Weekend happened in all of this. Friday and Saturday night in St. Louis, Missouri. And arguably the highlight of the weekend for me was the three-on-three. Now, yes, it was awesome how St. Louis incorporated all of their legends. They had Brett Hall come out and be part of the celebrity, not the celebrity, excuse me, but the shooting stars challenge. And Matthew Kachuk as well with Brady and Matthew both taking part in it. That was pretty cool. Brett Hall, it's funny when Brett Hall took the shot for Ryan O'Reilly. The interest, the the chuckling part I have with that is the fact that he, it's funny, he looked good with the shot, but he kind of flubbed it, you could tell, the way it kind of just dipped down right over the glass. But my amusing thought is how he set up for another shot because he's like, I got to try that. He looked so disappointed he wanted to shoot again. And don't get me wrong, Brett Hall was probably three sheets to the wind. I mean, I saw a picture with him and Curtis Joseph on top of his statue outside of the outside of the arena. But, man, you could tell he wanted to have another go at her. I don't care how sloshed, how sloshed, sloshed, how sloshed, there we go. There's words, Tyler. How sloshed Brett Hall gets. Shooting the puck, I don't care. I almost forgot. There's also Bernie Federko was there, fed a pass to Alex Petrangelo during the accuracy shooting just for fun, which I found kind of interesting because I'm like, oh, just, you know, kind of taking shots for people and stuff like that. Of course, there was Wayne Gretzky, who everyone's like, oh, a St. Louis Blues legend. No, dude, he played for half a season. The guy, was a, he was a trade deadline pickup from Los Angeles, did nothing in the playoffs. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. But, of course, my favorite one, because of the slight, I guess, embellishment of the event, was Al McGinnis. And Al McGinnis, for me as a kid, was the hardest shot in the history of time. Now, granted, yes, he came after Al Iafredi. I, of course, I was a little too young for Mr. Iafredi. In fact, by the time I was born, Iafredi had set the record. I think that was, what, 90, 93? 92, 93? It was... It was a while ago, obviously, given how young I was. And looking at it now, 93 was the 93 skills competition when he shot 105.2 miles an hour before Char broke it in 2008 to 105.4 miles an hour. He had a bomb of a shot. It's it's impressive how, and it's funny because now, when I heard about Al Iafredi, I was probably 12 years old, and we, which I still have, NHL 94, he was playing for the Washington Capitals. So what did I do? I chose to, like, Alex, we're going to play NHL 94 now. I chose to be the Washington Capitals, who had nobody. They had Don Bo praise their goaltender. Mike Ridley was their centerman, and they had Peter Bondra on the wing. This was not the Peter Bondra of the late 90s either. This was Peter Bondra who was coming into the league and uh, it still had Dale Hunter. So pretty much my line was Ridley flanked by Bondra and Hunter. And my defense was Al Iafredi and Kevin Hatcher. Who had, Kevin Hatcher in the game had a good shot too. But Iafredi had a 99-mile-hour, 99 overall slap shot. And I would just give him the puck and just blast it. My brother chose to be in this game because, hey, 
hard shots, we got Al McGinnis in the game with Calgary. So he'd be Calgary with Al McGinnis. So he went shot for shot. And, of course, his lineup was a lot better. He had Joe Neuendijk, Gary Roberts, Al McGinnis, Gary Suter. Goaltender was still at that time, Mike Vernon. He was set. Let's just put it that way. In NHL 94. So Al McGinnis, though, as a kid, because he played for St. Louis, and he would set the record. He had 100.1 in 2000, 100.5 in 98, I think it was they were talking about. He had, he was always the hardest shot, even at the late stages of his career. Because the first time I ever really was open up to Al McGinnis was when I was three years old in the 98 playoffs when he put one in from center ice against Osgood. Now, what I say to that is, well, are you surprised that he didn't? Like, oh, my gosh, a horrible goal by Osgood. No, the Langenbrunner goal later on in those playoffs was a bad goal. The McGinnis one should be expected. McGinnis has a cannon. That could hurt a lot. So I always, that's when I saw McGinnis come out. Like, okay, cool. And he had his, had his stick, and he's going to shoot it. And I'm like, I literally looked at because Thomas stayed the weekend with me, Thomas Biondo. We literally were watching this, and we said, Oh, come on. I actually, like, I literally looked at him like, he's going to hit 90. He actually, I'm pretty sure, because one thing I've noticed playing drop-in Sunday Night League with former professionals is that they still can shoot the puck. You don't just, I mean, yeah, it doesn't, it's not as hard and may not be as accurate, but it's still a firm shot. It's the comparable to a, I'd say a college kid slap shot. They can still shoot the puck because, you don't just lose the form. I mean, yeah, you probably got to work on it a time or two, but he went in there and took a hard slap shot, and it said 100.5 miles per hour. I'm like, oh, okay, uh-huh, because, yeah, the gig was up. They put it up on the Jumbotron. You could tell it wasn't real because you look over at the at the monitors on the side or the shot speed counters on the side, the monitors on the side. They didn't even have anything on there. They just put it up on the board. Oh my gosh, you hit 100, 100.5 miles an hour again. Whoa. Okay. I actually would have liked to have seen how hard we would have shot. That would have been better for me, I think. Because I still think he could hit 90 at his age. I forget. He's like, what, 50 something? 58? But man, he would have. I think he would have hit 90, and I still wouldn't want to face his shot. Heck no. Are you kidding me? Chara could be 92 years old. And if he winds up for a slap shot, you're darn right. I'm just going to move off to this side because he still probably could put it on at 70 miles an hour at that point. 70 miles an hour, that's not that hard at all. Well, you know what? I'm a sissy, so just come off it. Nonetheless, though, that was part of the skills competition as well. And there was, of course, the fastest skater, which Connor McDavid did not win. It was won by Matt Barzell, Matthew Barzell. And I... We'll get to Connor McDavid in a minute later because obviously we know a pretty good reason why he did not win this competition. And the accuracy shooting was won by Jacob Slavin, who, remember, was not even supposed to be a part of the skills competition. That's why I would like to have had Alex here for that one because he'd probably be having a gosh darn parade for him. As remember, he replaced Dougie Hamilton. And I'm trying to think of the other winners. Literally, I'm doing these all off the top of my head. But those were, of course, the nat- the big events. And Patrick Kane won that celeb- or the shooting stars event where literally everyone just trying to shoot it into the into that arch at center ice. And then there was the controversy with both Mitch Marner and David Pasternak about the arch that you could put that you could somehow put it behind the arch, 
but into the arch. You know, you go around it, but like it hit the backside of it because the puck would curve. There was that controversy. I'm sure they're going to figure it out next year when they go to Florida down in Sunrise at the BB&T Center, which means, oh my goodness, there's actually going to be people there. Well, who, who knows? But there is a lot of cool ideas. I saw a lot of the, the promo sweaters. Did anyone see that on social media? The there's people were like making up sweater ideas already, and they had like a Miami Vice theme with the team logos. That'd be kind of neat. Because I can tell you right now, nobody's going to buy into the fact of having Florida Panther colors. I don't think that's going to work. And I'm sick of the black and silver and very bland rosters that or the sweaters they've had for the all-star rosters the last couple of years. Go back to when they actually designed them. When they wanted to look cool, you know, have them unique, not this black and yellow or whatever. No, I want it to be like the, like the city. I'm not now it would have been a little awkward with St. Louis having to be blue and yellow. I will get that, but do the do heck you could pro, you could do all of the colors the blues have ever had. You could do blue, you could do yellow, you could do white, you could do red. Yes, what you're exactly what I'm saying. I'm talking the blues notes from the mid '90s. You're darn right in the late '90s. I'm talking the Grant Fior, early Grant Fior blue sweaters, the Brett Hall, the Al McGinnis, the heck the John Casey ones. There you are. That's a that's there's a name right there. John Casey, yeah. You remember that one that allowed a shot from the blue line by that guy named Iserman? That guy. Those are the ones I'm talking about. But my favorite thing of the entire skills competition was, if you guys have been paying attention to the show, the three-on-three, the elite women's three-on-three little showcase game that they had. And I honestly, Thomas, Thomas is, it's funny because he follows the NHL to the point, obviously we, we've had him on the show a few times, but he's not the biggest on the knowledge of women's hockey. I'm talking like players like Marie Philippe Pelin, Hillary Knight, those players. He doesn't know Brianna Decker, Kendall Coyne, Schofield. Like he, he doesn't know like, oh my gosh, the names, you know, he doesn't know every player that's ever played in a, any of the dream gap tour games for the pro women's hockey player association. Doesn't know any of those. He doesn't know any big names in the NWHL, which to be fair, it's still in its, infant stages. It's still baby steps for most people. You're not going to have many casual women's hockey fans out there. The only casual women's fans you really see are the ones that watch it when it gets on the Olympics. But that's what they're trying to obviously bridge here. So going to the three-on-three, I, of course, was cheering for Canada, but I I was cheering for Canada, but I was cheering for a good game. Because three-on-three makes it very interesting because it gives a great opportunity for a lot of skill to be shown and a lot of wide-open hockey gets their speed going, gets the creativity flowing, that's what you want to showcase in this kind of a game. And it was the absolute perfect display of it. It was a 2-1 game, which you think, oh, that's low scoring. That's no fun. It was great hockey. Both teams had great chances, and Canada was able to come out on top 2-1. Rebecca Johnson scored less than a minute in, like, and that's when people thought, oh, yeah, here we go. 15 goals in these two teams. It's going to be a barn burner. Let's go. But then on the other end, Anne-Marie Debienne decided, uh, no. No, that's not going to happen. Melody Dau scored to make it 2 nothing. Hillary and I did get a goal for the Americans, I think, in the second half because there were two 10-minute halves. But it was like the chances and the creativity, the plays they were making, they were toe-dragging, they were walking defenders clean. It, lo- it looked, and it's funny, I really lo- Thomas and I were trying to compare 
because obviously him and I that Friday night had just done a men's division one ACHA game. I literally looked at him and said, could our men's D1 team even beat these players? And we honestly questioned it. And, you know, physical, you know, physical hockey aside, if you put, you know, the talent level between those two, between our, between Davenport's D1 team and you know, the American Canadian, heck, the women's all-stars, if you will. I'd be concerned for the men's division one team. I'd love to see these players compete at a high level like this. And Pierre Lebrun, of course, put out a great tweet as well. They recorded it, show his daughters and they were into it. And he said, we got to make it happen now. And I remember I said it last year after Kendall Coyne Schofield just simply did a lap, just simply did a lap at full tilt. And everyone's like, yes, Brianna Decker did a great job with you know the that's the skills comp uh, the skills relay competition doohickey I don't know the names of them exactly anymore they're probably sponsored by like Enterprise or Geico or whatever the heck they are now but it was so enlightening to just watch it because for someone like me who had watched the World Championships the last couple of years who had watched the Olympics and watched a lot of the CWHL games that were broadcasted. And I did watch the Isabel cup last year in the NWHL, the NWHL all-star game. You, I've been, so I've been kind of, I've kept up a little bit on it. I know granted there's a lot of people that are religious out there. We have uh, at the hockey writers, we have a few very good writers that cover women's hockey, which is outstanding, but it's great to see, then put on display with the national spotlight. You saw the crowd too. They were getting into it. They were like, wow, this is great. And Dabian probably was the MVP. I heard people, I think they said the exact stat was 11 saves, but I heard 18 saves right off the hop. But nonetheless, for 20 minutes, when you allow 12 shots on goal, that's quite a few. I think they had 12 or 13 shots on goal. Thomas and I were just like, wow. Like he was shocked that this was such good hockey. And it, you know, everyone loves three on three and overtime in the NHL, but here these late here these women were just absolutely putting on a show for the fans. And I was so just happy to watch this and just think I'm like, this is what people this is what you see now. Give them a league. I mean, yes, this is the best on best, pretty much, if you will. And I know there were some controversial comments with Cassie Campbell Pascal on the Sportsnet broadcast of the skills competition, how, you know, NWHL investors are not going to be happy with it, blah, blah. Like, whatever she said, the way the NWHL responded made no sense for anybody. It was pretty much a sh- it was pretty much what Cassie said that kind of was a punch to the NWHL because there is still some hostility between the former CWHL players and the current NWHL regime. And even though players like Kendall Coyne were part of the NWHL, there were a lot of good players played on Team Canada that played on the NWHL in the NWHL that did the boycott that took part in the boycott and a lot of, you know, American players that were in the CWHL that chose to had the opportunity to go play in the NWHL that chose to be a part of the boycott. I'm still in the, I'm still, you know what side I'm on. I want the league. I want a league, one league, one fully functional professional league, not this stipend, not this $2,000 a year BS. All right. I want a league. I want a league. And I still, if it happens, I want the league to be in the summer. Why? I want it to be just like the WNBA. I want to be able to watch it. I want to be, if it has to compete with, you know, the Leafs, I, I, I don't want that to happen because, yes, I would choose the Leafs first because they're my team. But I would still watch 
when I could. Like I still watch when I have ESPN Plus. I still watch NCAA women's games because they they have the deal with the ECAC and I do is, you know, if I ever ever board on my laptop on the road, I've been doing a couple of road trips, I get on Flow Hockey. There's a lot of great action on there that I suggest people try to get out and watch. But I want a fully functional league. Because in the summertime, because man, then we can go year round and Alex and I wouldn't have to look up topics. We have an angry August, but we'd be angry because it's a playoff push. That's why. That's what I want. That's what I personally would want to have. Because man, hockey 365 days a year, wouldn't that be great? Would that not be great? Heck, the NFL is, well, not the NFL, but the football is trying to do that. They got the XFL starting a week after the Super Bowl. Hey, let's try that. Let's get it going. Yeah, that's totally good. Uh, if, it, if it fails, I won't be shocked. But the, NWH, the NWHL or whatever you're going to call it, the Women's Professional Hockey League that eventually, hopefully comes here soon, you will see those players that you saw on last Friday and then some. It's going to be awesome. Now, to the All-Star game on Saturday, I didn't watch a whole lot because Thomas and I had our hockey day at Davenport. We had four games in a nine-hour span. Let me tell you, it was time-consuming. It was fun, and it went by really fast when we were actually a part of it, but that whole day, because I had to work that morning, we really got back. We did so much preparation for those games. It was ridiculous. We... We had to like switch on and off games because of games overlapping each other. But it was a great time. But the, regardless, that kind of inhibited us the opportunity to watch the All-Star game. And I love how everyone just said, nope, it's not hockey, it's dumb. Well, okay, good, I didn't miss anything. Pacific won, apparently, because, hey, someone in the Pacific's actually going to win a thing this year, not like they're going to win anything else. But, of course, I did see the big highlights. Number one, Green Day, Billy Joe Armstrong going nuts. Awesome. Are you shocked? The NHL, are you shocked that Billy Joe Armstrong wouldn't take the time? Has he ever been to a Green Day concert? Obviously not. I know he made a deal with them, with NBC and all that BS, but are you shocked that Green Billy Joe Armstrong dropped the F-bomb? Dude, you had Snoop Dogg in Los Angeles a couple years ago. Honest to goodness, you had Snoop Dogg. Hey, Snoop, we want you to do a performance. R.I.G. Man, we gonna do this thing real good. I don't know how. I don't know how Snoop Dogg sounds. Regardless, if you didn't think Snoop Dogg was gonna drop an f bomb, you're you're a dummy. I'm just surprised he didn't say anything more than that. That's all I'm gonna say. Billy Joe Armstrong, he gets all psyched up. What's he gonna do? Not swear? You kidding me? He's gonna go all out. It's a rock concert for him. Hockey aside, he is gonna go full tilt. Guess what he did? He went full tilt. Just you know, full tilt, and you know. And then some. Falls tilt in the bag of chips. That's what he did. But other than that, I mean, that was pretty much about it for in the Green Day part. But there were the two parts before the game started that were awesome. When they were introducing the Central Division team, they put the Blues last, obviously. He put the host team last. They brought out Layla Anderson to introduce Petrolandro, Perron, and Perron, excuse me, Bennington, and O'Reilly. And boy, does she have a future as a public address announcer, man. She got into it, man. From the Blues. Oh, man, she was awesome. Le- Layla still just inspires me. Everything she does, it's amazing. Like, every time I think, I'm like, oh, this is tough right now. The girl just went through cancer treatment. And she's out here just, you know, doing public address for the Blues. I mean, she's got a job 
with the Blues as soon as she wants to work for them. It's going to be great. She'll be like media relations or something. It's just, she is amazing, and and it was awesome to see her. But what was just a little bit awesomer, like I said, I didn't see this live. I saw this after all the games were done at about 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. Charles Glenn. Charles Glenn, who I truly fell in love with during the playoffs, him and Boston's Anthem Singer. I truly fell in love with Charles Glenn because he is a soul man through and through. Walks out with a cane looking like a bad mother trucker. And he goes out there and just belts that anthem. Last year's playoffs, it was awesome. And the fact that he did it for so long, I know he's one of those guys that it's like, oh, he's been doing it forever. He's such a bandwagoner. Well, you're right, because I'll be honest with you guys. I watched the Blues in the playoffs the last few years, but I never watched the anthem. Not many networks. I mean, now the NBC has slowly gotten to that point where they've been doing it a lot more often, showing the anthem now, just because of the emotion that goes into it. I know how Sportsnet always does the anthems because Hockey Night in Canada would do them as well. And TSN does them off and on. It really depends on what game it is for them, it seems like. Ever since really the Leafs started showing more of them, I think they do with them a little bit more, not as much. I don't, not as near, not as much as the Sportsnet does. I know that, but just hearing Glenn go out there because you know came out of timer for one more time and just the way he sings the anthem too. Because you know there's the usual say, oh, say can you see? Charles Glenn will just go out and do it like I'm just gonna do it slightly different here, slightly different there, and and the home. Oh, like the way he does that. And the, like, I'm just like, I would get fired up. listening to him. Like Martina Ortiz Louise is one thing, but the way Charles Glenn sang it and the way they do it, like there's three for me all time that get me fired up. Vancouver. I'd say in the 20, I forget I used to do it for Vancouver's games back when they were president's trophy winning Stanley cup finalist Canucks. They had a really good guy as well. And there's Renee Rancourt, of course. You know, you, you can't ignore him. But for me, the ones that always get me fired up. I love Karen Newman for Detroit. Karen Newman was one of my early crushes, but she never really inspired me. She was a great singer. Great singer. Never got me inspired. Renee Rancourt, despite being a Bruins guy, would get me going. I would have... I'd have to throw up Martina Ortiz. Martina Ortiz Louise, just because absolutely wonderful voice and, you know, and the way she does, you know, and, you know, and, I'm the, you know, like the way she ends Oh Canada is absolutely amazing. I have to start singing it in order to actually get that high note again, because that's the last thing I'm sure you all want me to hear start singing Chicago Blackhawks over the years, just because I know Alex hates the clapping and all that stuff, but for some reason, I don't know what it is, but just, I love getting booed. I love being chanted against. But for some reason, when I hear the loud roar of the crowd when they sing the anthem, it just gets me going every time. You just, yeah, it's like just, America. I mean, it's just like that. I mean, it's awesome. And, you know, it's always great when you get the crowd to sing the anthem. And, you know, all, you know, I, I still love the Jets when they do the true north and stuff like that. When they were in, the, I remember the playoffs in twenty. It was a twenty fifteen. They played Anaheim. The, when they, they were swept, yes, but the crowd in MTS was just 
at high fever pitch and they just belted out that anthem like it was nobody's business. It was almost like watching a Royal Junior game in Canada. It was like when they did, you know, when Canada won in 2010, how the crowd went crazy. Like, I love when they sing, but Chicago, it's just just guttural screaming the entire time. It's For me, especially in the playoffs, it's awesome. I That's why I almost want them to get back to the playoffs, just so that energy's there again. Because it's hard to do it every single game and be at the highest peak of energy, especially like, hey, Tuesday night, it's going to be the Blackhawks and the Panthers. Oh, say, okay, yeah, all right, woo. You know, it's hard to get it up every single game. You know, you shoot in the finals, yeah, you're just... Stanley Cup, yeah! Just start losing your mind. It's it's wonderful. But Charles Glenn, last year's playoffs, just the way he sang it, just the slight, the slight changes to it, the slight different key at certain part. I don't know what it was, but he would just hit, he hit notes and it would just strike a chord in me. You know, I may, I may be, I may be one of the few. I mean, outside of St. Louis. I don't know if, I mean, I'd love to tweet at Tony X right now and tell him, hey, you know, Charles Glenn, is is it just because he's a St. Louis guy? I mean, it's so, it was just weird because I just, the first time I heard it, I think it was the first round when St. Louis was playing. They were battling Winnipeg, and I was still thinking Winnipeg was going to be to the conference final again. But I listened to him like, wow, that, that guy's pretty good. And by the conference final, like it's actually, I'd say probably game seven in Dallas against Dallas. That for me would probably have been the first time I got, obviously you're already doing a game seven. It's already game seven, big game. And then the way Charles went out there, cause remember, everyone knew it was going to be his last season, last season. So it was like, is this the last time we see Charles Glenn? He went out there and laid out the anthem. Oh, no. oh just, yeah. All right, cool. This guy is legit. And then they end up winning. All right, they go to San Jose. Well, they they handled San Jose. Win game six. Woo, they got it. They go to the finals. Game six. They have a chance to win on home ice. Charles goes out there and belts out the anthem, and they lose. But, you know, it's okay. I'll be honest. That was the best matchup. Not the Bruins versus the Blues. It was a battle of the anthem singers last year for me. That's just me, though. The goaltenders were okay, too. Bennington and Rask, they were good goaltenders. But in regards to the rest of the All-Star game, yeah, who cares? I mean... Nobody goes to the All-Star game for the action. Anyone who goes crazy about, you know, points and goals and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, Mario Lemieux had a great, what was it, he had eight or nine points the one year. I know Gretzky had the four goals for the longest time before Danny Heatley came out as a rookie and put up put up four goals and had the shootout winner in 03. 03, yep. Those were, those are some good times. Good times. Back in the day when, well, I was probably back in the day when I didn't work around the All-Star game. I didn't have to worry about missing it. I would always go watch it. And good Lordy, 12, 11 games, 14, 12 games, 30 goals. Score. Oh, my gosh. those were... Being a kid, it was so much more easier. Like That's why I always look back. Like What was the greatest times to watch the All-Star game? Oh, yeah, the 2000, you know, 99, you know, 2002, whatever, you know, or 2001. Those were the real All-Star games. Now it's like, oh, okay, all right, that's, a, that's about it for that. Like I said, probably just because nostalgia and, you know, everyone looks back at their childhood fondness, you know. But moving on from the All-Star game. I, I know there was the the sport the Sportsnet feature for Connor McDavid. 
about whatever it was called, whatever it takes. I've yet to watch it because I have not been able to find a stream for it yet because Sportsnet does a really good job of hiding stuff in Canada. Still have not watched a single episode of Ice Surfing. I'd probably love to watch it. But I can't because why? Live in the States. It's a lot of fun, folks. I suggest everyone live in the States. It's a great time. But they talked about how Connor McDavid could have missed the entire season this year if he had decided to go with surgery because he had a PCL tear. And a PCL tear, it's funny, I was going to have the future wife, the fiance, Kelly, come on in to talk about the piece about the PCL injury. Because remember she came on when talking about when Zach Hyman tore his ACL. She had and that was with a brief bit of knowledge. She barely has she's like I I asked her I'm like do you think about a PCL tear? She's like nope. And it and it's not like a nope as in no, I know you want to ask me but I'm not going to talk about it. It was a nope as in she had no clue. It's such a rare kind of a tear because it does more damage than an ACL. An ACL tear is at the front of your knee. You know, it's easy to be, you can still be mobile. A PCL tear can put you on the shelf free long time. But McDavid went out there and did an extensive amount of rehab to at least repair it on its own to get it to work. That's why he didn't probably win the skills competition this past Friday. I don't know if it's because he didn't go full tilt, but why would he? He's still one of the fastest players in the game. He's still quick. He can still make plays at higher speeds than anyone else can. And is he going too fast at times? Sure, but you know what? It's it's still... You, you almost watch him now, and now you're like, that knee is not all the way there, and he's still better than everyone else. That's the difference. And I still say, Edmund, he would not be in a questionable playoff spot right now. I mean, had he, well, really, actually, had he been in any other division, it'd be a little, a little, a little more interesting. But since the Pacific Division decides they just don't want to win at all, that's why Edmonton is still second in the division. Oh, by the way, we'll talk about that later because there's a team in front of them. There's a team in front of them, guys, a team in front of the Oilers that I'm kind of interested to talk about here. We'll get to them, though. We'll get to that stuff later, though. But a couple things from last night's game. We should probably talk about this. P.K. Subban, who is still in New Jersey, even though the trade deadline is about a month away now. And the Devils were in Ottawa last night. Big matchup. Big matchup in Ottawa. Senators and Devils. Lottery implications on the line. And Brady Kachuk plays for the Ottawa Senators, one of the bright spots for this hockey club, with hot Sam Bacho, Thomas Shabbat. And for some reason, one of the weirdest, most stellar goaltenders at times, Anders Nielsen. And so I think it was, I forgot which period it was in. P.K. Subban and Brady Kachuk, yeah, you know, a couple of whacks in front of the goal. Good battle going. Good battle between two good boys. And then all of a sudden, Couple taps by Brady, couple taps by PK, and away they go. Listen, PK Subban used to be a pretty big hitter in this league. Brady Kachuk does not need to hit. He knows how to fight. Look at his brother and his dad. His father is Keith Kachuk. His brother is Matthew Kachuk. Brady knows how to fight. 
P.K. Subban does not. We learned that in spades last night. Did Brady Kachuk make P.K. look like a much lesser man or what? I was going to say something else there, but this is a PG program, even though we do a lot of suggested things on here. Nonetheless, I... I, you know, PK has sometimes been beaten. He's been hit. He's been made a fool. Made look like a fool. I had never seen PK look so inferior to a younger player in this league ever. I'm not talking about skill, just in as a man. Brady Kachuk fed him his lunch and dinner and breakfast the next morning. Holy cow! Brady Kachuk is just—he's showing that. I mean, he's got he's got a lot of his dad in him. He's skill. He's physical. And apparently, if you, t- if you take him off, he's going to go full-blown, curly-haired madman on you because he just starts feeding him lefts and rights. Holy cow. I, that was a, it was a good tell for one guy. The other guy, yes, New Jersey ended up picking up the win last night, but who really cares? That was just, it was a good tilt for Brady because it shows how tough he is, but really, you're beating P.K. Subban. I've never looked at P.K. as a fighter really ever, and I know his game is quite honestly diminished drastically in the last couple of seasons. Don't forget, 16-17 was only three seasons ago, folks. Now three seasons ago seems like a while. It seems like in the NHL now the the year by year gets longer and longer. It's not like, oh, he played 20 years in the league. That's decent. He played 20 years in the league now, and like, wow, you're pretty, you have some pretty good endurance. Three years ago now, P.K. Subban was one of the best defensemen in this, this league. Pecorine was the best goaltender in this league, one of the. And yet, here we are in 2020. P.K. Subban is looking inferior. And now we go down to Nashville, where, P, where Pecorine looks meh. Very meh. And you see Saros, who was supposed to be his successor in goal. Meh. Last night, the Leafs traveled down to Smashville. The Leafs really ended on a very bad note, losing to Chicago the last game before their week off, before the All-Star break. Leafs go down there, and I don't want to say they don't smash Smashville. They did handle them, though, for good parts of that hockey game. In the third period, though, when they got a 4-1 lead, they just fell off the gas. But boy, did Pecorino look like garbage. I get it. He's not been that good this year either, and that's what got Peter Laviolette fired. Because him and UC Saros were absolute, you know, they were a dumpster fire. And John Hines is just there because, hey, he's a former NHL coach. He's going to write this ship right. Well, David Poyle, you're getting old. I never have thought that, because when I was younger, obviously, when I was in high school, I was in college, Pecorino was one of my favorite goaltenders to watch. Carey Price was my idol, but I was more like Pecorino. Flying out of the net, flopping around, using my long appendages to stop everything. And guess what? It worked for him. Not for me. That's why I'm doing this podcast now. But, you know, I, with age and everything like that, I get it. And I know he's not getting any younger and his contract's just going to keep chugging along. But it's a huge, huge detriment because this team's not going to turn around. If you see Saros doesn't get more playing time here soon, yes, you don't want to have a $7 million backup goaltender, but you're going to have to take that risk. You need to, you need to find a goaltender. Are you going to keep riding this out like like how the Rangers tried to ride out Lundqvist? Alex Georgiev is going to be the next goaltender for the Rangers here in a couple of years because he looks like it now. 
is UC Saros going to be the starting goaltender for Nashville in a couple years? I don't know, man. His numbers aren't looking good. He has not seemed as confident as usual. Do you need to play him more? Do you need to give him more opportunities to actually show that he can be in the NHL? Yeah, he can show it as a backup sometimes, but so could Aaron Dell, but now he's garbage too. This team, this Nashville team, if they ever want to get back, yeah, you can, in today's game with the salary cap, you can quickly retool, add a couple pieces here and there. Listen, they have Matt Duchesne still. They have Kyle Turris there still. Ryan Johansson. You know, this team should not be this bad. Yeah, I know. Yes, when you have Roman Yossi as your leading scorer, there's a problem. Drew Doughty is one of the leading scorers in Los Angeles. There's a problem out there in, in the Californias. Not just with that team either. We'll get to that division in a second. But I want Nashville to do well. I love the atmosphere in Nashville. I love how loud it gets. I love how it's like a college hockey game. It's awesome. People are loud. People are crazy. I like it. I love it. I want some more of it. Tim McGraw. Heck yeah. I'm all for it. Let's get it going. They can't do diddly squat. They are trying to look like a number one hit by Trace Adkins back in the 90s, looking like Garth Brooks in the 90s. What are they looking like now? Hunter Hayes in 2020. Absolute garbage. That's what Nashville is. They are the epitome of pop country nowadays. They can go on Broadway and just hit every single little honky-tonk place and still go absolute flat tone and get booed off the stage because they sound like every other piece of garbage that's on the country radio stations today. They are no longer powerful. They are no longer good. They have just ran back into the expansion era, and they are heading that way faster than anything else, and yet they have the talent to do so. It's almost as if you put together a super team, and it's not a super team, but still you put in together a team with a bunch of all-stars, and it just doesn't work. They just forget how to play hockey. The Monsters taking their powers away. You're right. Where's the Monster hockey team? We'll find them, and then we'll give Nashville their powers back. That's what we'll do. No. This Nashville team, if they don't start getting rid of some old pieces, they're not going to be any good. Yet Roman Yossi is one of the oldest players on the team, but yet he's probably going to be he's probably their best player. You need a goaltender. You need to get rid of guys like Brian Boyle. You need to find a way to retool this team to be good. They still have Matthias Eckholm. They still have Ryan Ellis. This team should be good. And you're not going to be able to bank on Pecorini bouncing back. He's too old at this point. It's way too far gone. Got to find a goaltender. Find a coach that can actually coach. John Hines. Nope. Nope. Look at Dallas Akins right now. Remember, he's going to revamp the Ducks. Yeah, psych. That's it. That was his second. This is the second chance, by the way, guys. Remember this? Dallas Akins, second chance in the NHL. Hey, good start to the year. October, November. Great. Sitting at the bottom of the division. Hello, lottery pick. You're going for that right now with the Ducks. What are, you, what are you trying to do here, guys? What is Nashville trying to do? Do they want to be competitive? Do they want to win again? Do they want to be an actual threat in the Central Division? Because right now, they're eons behind teams like Colorado, St. Louis. Heck, even I've, I have more faith in Chicago bouncing back. Even though Chicago should be better with Robin Leonard back, in, back there in goal. But then again, they don't have enough up front. But we'll get to more of the teams individually. We look at the standings. Watch here to wrap up this show. But my point is, Nashville is just not 
nearly it's a disaster down there. And the nice part about watching some of these teams, and yeah, you only play them twice a year, do the least, but you watch them and you just wonder, man, remember this team was good? When remember when I say this team, I mean like look at the core is still there for the most part. Yes, PK's gone, I get it. That's that's how the game works. Philip Forsberg, he's still there. Victor Arvidsson, he's still there. Remember when this team was good. This team. There is no difference. There's barely any difference between the 2017 Cup finalist and this team. They're a few years older. Great. There's still talent there, and yet they can't put it together. Maybe teams have figured them out. That's probably what it is. Over time, you know what? You'll learn. Clearly, Nashville has not been able to learn because they're sitting well outside the playoff spot right now. However, a couple things to mention from that game last night on the Leafs side of things. Rasmus Sandin scoring his first NHL goal. Congratulations to him. Really good way to, I guess, make your statement that you are here to stay. And I was listening to the intermission report last night because I was listening on the radio because I was at work. And it was Jim Taddy and, oh gosh, I can't, I, please use the hashtag the kill podcast, Leafs fans out there, and tell me who was doing the intermission last night with Jim Taddy for TSN because she, I forget her name. I've heard her name before, but I forgot what her, oh my gosh, Tyler, I'm embarrassed right now. But she did a really good job explaining that this is not Rasmus Sandin coming up for a minute. This is Rasmus Sandin coming up here and showing that he can play. He is exciting. I'm really excited to see what he can do in this league if he gets an an honest opportunity because guess what? With Morgan Riley out still, the kid's going to get some more time. And, you know, I remember when I talked to Todd Crocker, I know I keep going back to the time him and I talked, but this was right after Sandin got sent down. And we talked off air for a minute about how Sandine playing under Babcock just wasn't going to work for him. That's why he never really didn't really have a chance to excel or succeed at the NHL level to start the year. When he played under Keith, he was seen more loose. He was more offensive. He was able to create more plays and so on and so forth. But that's why it was nice when he got called up for the second opportunity under Keith. Keith lets him play. It's a lot more interesting to watch Rasmus Sandin now. He finally gets his first NHL goal. Really good news for him. Really exciting for the Leafs. Have their young defenseman cashing in. It's going to be great. He's pretty much going to get the Travis Dartman treatment. Comes in late in the season. Really meant for the playoffs and will probably be used sparingly throughout, but he'll be used in the right moments, and I'm really excited to see how he excels in his role. Some news out of today. Marcus Pedersen signing a five-year extension with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was signed to a one-year contract for this season at eight hundred and seventy-four grand, or a little above that. This year, he has one goal and 14 points, or 14 assists, excuse me, for 15 points through his first 50 games with the Penguins. He split time last year, was traded over from Anaheim late last season, put up a total of 25 points last year in a grand total of 84 games last season as he played split time between the two played for Skelatva 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 hey played in the Swedish elite league before coming over to North America played on the 2016 world junior team for Sweden 2016 the team that Finland that was unable to win once again another Swedish team that won every game in the pool play but could not win when it mattered most but 
having a good year this year with the Pens, and they're going to reward him with a five-year deal that will take him through the end of the 2025 season. He's making uh, his AAV is $4,025,175 a year. And the nice part about that is that it's consistent throughout. It's not a fluctuating salary per year. It's the same throughout. He's okay with that. He does have a modified no trade clause in the 2023-24-24-25 season. So his last two seasons of his contract, which starts on July 1st, 2023, where he would submit an eight-team no trade list which pretty much means, ladies and gentlemen, he could go to three quarters of the league. 75% of the league has a chance to get him if he were to be traded by that time. Take a quick look here before we wrap up today's show. We got a lot of, well, I don't have a lot of staying stuff to talk about, but just give a quick run through of what we're looking at here in the land of the null, the null, the NHL. I know nobody calls it the null, the Null is actually the North American Hockey League, the Tier 2 Junior A League here in the States. But Washington's still kind of pretty well set in the Metropolitan Division. Pittsburgh, when they went on that incredible hot streak without Sidney Crosby, jumped their way up to second. Nor- you know, the Islanders are right behind them. And where I'm really interested as with the win last night, the Leafs are still two points out of a playoff spot as they're two points both behind Carolina for the second wildcard spot and two points behind Florida for the third spot in the Atlantic is pretty much once again, it's going to be five teams out of the Metro making the playoffs and only the top three coming out of the Atlantic. And pretty much if you look at it in the East and particularly the West as well, but we'll get to them in a second. I'm really interested to see who is really out of it. I don't think there's still whispers coming out of Montreal that Mark Bergman is going to try to make a couple of moves and actually in order to get this team on the right track, they're 4-5-1 in their last 10. I know they had an overtime win the other night. I'm not sold on the Habs being a playoff team. They're Right now, they're 10 points out of a playoff spot. They're really not looking that good. I mean, heck, even Buffalo looks better than them, but I still don't have any faith for them. Yeah, the Rangers are technically within striking distance as well with 11 points, and there is. I mean, yeah, they have, you know, they have... 40, they have 34 games left this season. There is an opportunity for them to move up, but can you really make a charge late in this year? Because remember, St. Louis started right at the beginning of January. January 2, put Bennington in, away they go. They literally took off from there. At this point in the season, it's too hard to make a late charge. Math, I would, Not mathematically, but Ottawa, New Jersey, and Detroit are probably the only three teams that are definitively out. But I just don't see the Rangers making moves up. I don't see Buffalo. The Le- don't forget, the Leafs and the Sabres are fourth and fifth in the Atlantic Division. There's an eight-point gap between the two teams. And between second and fourth, which would be Tampa, Florida, and Toronto. Toronto's got 59 points. Tampa's got 63 Tampa's still on a bit of a tear, as is Florida. Florida's 8-2 and two of their last 10, 7-2-1 are the Lightning. Probably Boston out of the three teams are probably the worst with a 5-3-2 and two record. Oh, that's awful. 12 points in their last 10 games. Leafs are in the same boat. They've just had a couple of laughers here and there. And, you know, there's some big games coming up for the Leafs. Yeah, they got a big game coming up against Ottawa on Saturday just because it's always a big game against Ottawa. It's Hockey Night in Canada. Big game, though, in Dallas on Wednesday. Part of their little, I guess, their little road trip they got going here. They go down to Dallas, 
And Dallas right now is not a team you want to mess with in the fact of just because they are a team that's kind of holding on right now. They're not world leaders, but they're, they're right there in terms of a playoff spot. They are third in the central right now, two points behind Colorado in the division. But I, you got to look at that game as the Leafs saying, all right, this is another telltale game where they have an opportunity to get points, but they need to win. But then you on Monday, the third, after be, after playing Ottawa, not beating Ottawa, knock on wood, after playing Ottawa Saturday, you get Florida. Atlantic division games are a must-win scenario for the Leafs at this point, especially since you host the Panthers on home ice. You have an opportunity to actually move up on them. And then who knows what happens this week with Florida. They have a chance to pass them. And it's just a huge opportunity for them. And the Leafs have played 50 games. Florida and Tampa both have played one less. So they each have a game in hand. Boston actually has a has two games less or two games more played than both Tampa and Florida. They are one game more than Toronto. Each team behind Boston has a game in hand or two games in hand. These are some big games coming up here for the Leafs. They have the Rangers coming up next Wednesday and then the Ducks Friday before Saturday in Montreal. Once again, those are three games. I get it back-to-back, Ducks and Habs. But then you could put the Ducks against Hutchinson, Freddie against Montreal on Saturday night. I'm serious. Those are three games with the Rangers in there as well. Three games you should win. There's no question about it. And yes, you have Arizona the next Tuesday, which now looks like is starting to look like a must-win game for for Arizona because they're starting to fall off a little bit as we make our way over to the Western Conference. Arizona now sitting in the top wildcard spot, tied with Vegas, 57 points. They're both tied for third in the division. The only difference between the two teams is the tiebreaker of head-to-head matchups just because of the fact that Arizona actually has one less Regulation or overtime win with 21. Vegas has 22 regulation overtime wins with Arizona having 26 wins overall on the season in one less game than the Knights. That's really the only tiebreaker right now as the Pacific Division is honestly, it's weird. If you look at the standings on the NHL.com website and you're looking at the wild card aspect of it, if you want to go top to bottom in the conference, you can literally just look at the divisions because you have St. Louis, Colorado, and Dallas at 68, 62, and 60 points, respectively. The Pacific Division has Vancouver, who has played one more game than Dallas, so Dallas would technically have a game in hand, quote-unquote. Vancouver has 60. Edmonton is 57. Calgary is 57. Arizona has 57. Vegas has 57. There is a four-way tie for second place. And like I said, folks, you did not hear me wrong when I said that earlier. Vancouver, the Canucks are first in the Pacific. Now, here's Robin Williams with Jumanji. What year is it? That's literally... I thank you very much, Robin, for that, by the way. You're asking what year it is. No, folks, it is not 2012. No, it is not 2011, nor is it 2010. Robert Roberto Luongo is not the goaltender for the Vancouver Canucks. Jacob Markstrom somehow, someway, has had this team right now on a three-game win streak, 7-3 and three in their last 10 games. I saw an article the other day on Sportsnet talking about how Markstrom is going to be the reason why the Canucks make this playoff run. I've always loved Jacob Markstrom. Because remember, he was on that Florida team that was bad. 
but he always seemed like he always had a really good game every now and again. He'd come out and put up a 35 save, a 40 save performance. They'd still lose 4-3. The Panthers would. That's just because they were bad in general. Awful hockey team. He gets traded in the Luongo trade back to Vancouver. Doesn't really get much of an opportunity to be actually successful. Team was not good. Sedin's right there. And Ryan Miller is supposed to be the savior of the Canucks. Yeah, remember how the remember that? Remember those days? Jim Benning was an idiot. But now this team with Bo Horvat as their captain, Brock Besser, Elias Petters. Elias Petterson shooting 102 mile an hour slap shots? Guys, are you kidding me right now? Holy smokes. I didn't think that could hit 80. He's thinner than I am. But then you have guys like, like I said, Besser, Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, all these fantastic pieces, these young, talented pieces, and they're sitting atop the division better than Connor McDavid, better than the Calgary lineup that has Monahan, Goudreau, Kachuk, all three, two of those teams, all three of those teams. First of all, can we all just kind of be a little bit happy, you know, for, I guess, Canadian fans that there's three teams at the top of a division? Because let's be honest, guys, Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto will not be top three ever in this current playoff format ever again. Just saying. Put it on there now. Paste it on the wall. Put it in the press. Just getting that one out of the way. But Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary right now are in this hunt of a playoff spot. Now, Grand, yes, it's only a three-point difference right now. In the next 32 games, Vancouver could just just plummet to the bottom of the bottom of the league, which they, what would they used to do by November, not January. This is the furthest they've actually made it anywhere and actually have looked like a legit contender to be in the playoffs. Vegas is clinging on to that last. I can't say clinging. It's weird because looking at the central as pretty much is what I was saying about the points later is that from the top three to the central, then the top three Pacific and then the wild card of the rest of the league. The only teams that are really out of it are San Jose, Anaheim, Los Angeles, three California teams. Remember when those teams were good too? That was about 2012 as well, right? Yeah. Smashville, they could have really used that win last night. They would have been at least four points away from a playoff spot. Minnesota, by the way, who has really not, they can't win on the road ever. They only went at home, it seems like, are only five points out of a playoff spot. This is how bad the West is right now, guys. You have Winnipeg and Chicago still in striking distance, both three points behind Vegas and Arizona and Calgary and Edmonton, all that stuff. Literally, Vegas could win a game and they're second in the division. That's how dumb this the Pacific is right now, guys. You have the top five teams. It's, it's, it's weird. It's like the Metro and the Atlantic, or the Metro and the Pacific. There's going to be five teams from the Metro that make the playoffs. There could easily be five teams from the Pacific. However, if somehow Arizona, Vegas, or Calgary, Edmonton all fall off, or even Vancouver, Winnipeg and Chicago could jump them. It could be five Central Division teams, which would make more sense if you ask me in the preseason. If you're looking at who is going to make the biggest move right now, I would really, because th- Columbus is still, and now going back to the, I'm, I'm looking at the league as a whole now, trying to figure out who is going to move up, who's going to move down. It's hard for me to think that the Islanders can be this bad. They're only 4-4-2 four, four, right now in their last 10 games coming out of the break. It's hard for me to think that Barry Trotz's team is going to continue to fall like this. I think they're going to bounce back up. They're right now third in the division, one point ahead of Columbus. And Columbus, it seems like they're just hitting this hot streak with Elvis in the building, 
they're going to ride their hot hands of Cam Atkinson and Seth Jones, like all these, they're just going to ride what they have. And I don't think that these are going to be the guys, but yet here they are. I don't think Columbus is going to be that good, but yet here they are. They're one point out of a play. They're one point out of a top three spot in the playoff in the, in the Metro, excuse me, five points behind Pittsburgh. Now catching Pittsburgh may be a little bit tough. Philadelphia right now is one point behind Carolina and they're just this hit or miss team right now that I'm not sure if they could do it. They can't win on the road. They only win their game at Wells Fargo. They're 17, four and four at home, 10, 13 and two on the road, 10, 13, my dad's birthday, by the way. I don't know if Philly can do it. Toronto. Yeah, they're two points out, but like I said, you're a win out of the playoffs. You have 32 games left. Do both the flyers and the Leafs to jump in. There's a great opportunity to do it. I just, it'll be tough to try to keep up because Florida's hot right now and they're supposed to be good. Tampa, guess what? They're good again, guys. That Remember that when they were like not going to make the playoffs? Yeah, that's not going to happen anymore. Boston, Tampa, 1-2. Toronto's going to have to either go for a wild card spot or hope Florida tails off a little bit. Philly, wild card spot because you're going to have to try to keep up with Carolina, try to keep up with Columbus. It's not going to be easy. In the West we go, Winnipeg and Chicago, they could easily, I don't even... The Pacific is so fragile. The five teams in it, all of them, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, Arizona, Vegas, all of them are so fragile. You snap your fingers and they all go on five-game losing streaks. I'm not joking. The Pacific, I still think, is only going to have three teams in the playoffs. I don't know which two are going to fall out, but I still see somehow Winnipeg, I know the 3-6-1. and one. They are struggling out their keisters, but there's so much time left for them to figure it out and turn it around. You get a few wins, and you're not just in the wild card picture, but you're in your divisional picture as well. Chicago, I don't know. Can Leonard be consistent? Chicago is that weird team. Chicago and Winnipeg both, actually. Because Vancouver's another team that only wins at home. They're 11-13-1 on the road. They're 17-5-3 at Rogers, Rogers Arena. Whereas Winnipeg and Chicago only win on the road. Chicago, 12-9-3, away from United Center. 14-11-2, away from MTS Bell Place, are the Jets. Both teams are Bettman 500. 11-11-2 are the Jets at home. Chicago, 12-12-3. Guys, if Winnipeg can get hot at home, if they can stop losing at this point, they've lost their last four games, but if they can turn it around at home, you're darn right they're going to get a wild card spot. I have a, I don't think Dallas is going to fall off. Colorado and St. Louis at this point in my eyes are just too far ahead of Winnipeg and Chicago to let up this much to let them jump anybody. I think Dallas will hold on to that third spot. It's going to be coming down to the wild card spot. There has there technically has to be three teams in the Pacific, but it'll be interesting to see who stays, who goes out of that Pacific division battle. Because like I said, four teams with 57 points and Vancouver, Van freaking Coover is leading the division. I am, I am in, I am excited. Got a couple months left in this regular season. We'll probably start doing a little bit more trade deadline talk next week. With Alex coming back, we'll try to figure out who needs to make moves in order to get better. Does Winnipeg need to make moves? Should Chicago start to buy? And is Mark Bergevin just trying to do one last ditch effort to keep his job? That'll be more stuff we'll talk about next week on the Kuehl podcast, which I'm going to wrap up here as I have to start getting ready to go for my game tonight. Thomas and I on a call. Yeah, Tuesday night game. I know I'm excited. 
We have a game against Western Michigan, the fourth and final time this season that our men's D1 team will be playing them. You can catch all that on the Davenport Athletic Network. Ah, who am I kidding? By the time you guys all read, oh, you guys listen to this or even see the tweet that it's even out, the game will probably be long since over. But you can catch it on demand as well. But don't forget, folks, you can always catch us on the Kiel Podcast on Google Play, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud. I think we're still on TuneIn Radio. I'm not quite sure. Nonetheless, you can catch us all there. Thank you very much, folks, for listening to this week's episode of the Kiel Podcast. Remember, before you go to bed tonight, text your loved ones, tell them you love them, hug your loved ones, tell them you love them ever so much because you never know. Thank you very much once again, guys. We will see you guys next week on the Kiel Podcast.